Hello and welcome to PostCloud, the kind of podcast where we're going to be talking around the evolving world of cloud technologies. Cloud has been around for a while now, and we believe that we're in the next phase of cloud, hence PostCloud. My name is Chris Krantz. I've got a few gray hairs and definitely receding hairlines that cover with a mohawk um, because I've been doing cloud, cloud consultancy startups for over a decade now and been in IT for a lot longer than that. And I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Stephen. Hi, I'm Stephen Howell uh, with 25 years under my belt in IT, unfortunately, leaving me with not even enough hair to do a mohawk, <laughs> unlike Chris here. And I focus on kind of the nuts and bolts of infrastructure, the, the underlying machinery. Week, we like to challenge the sales copy, ask about what the reality of doing things in the actual world is, whether that means you're an operations team, perhaps you're a DevOps unicorn, even an infrastructure engineer, anyone somewhere in that stack. We hope there's going to be something for you to hear about. Today, we're having a bit of a chat about the transition in IT infrastructure. So I'm strapping, uh, expect a few real stories from our past, a bit of nostalgia, and maybe a few laughs, but my sense of humor is terrible. Uh, but let's unravel the market versus the reality. So whether you're a seasoned professional or just tech curious, hopefully there's something in it for you today. All right, grab your favorite beverage, settle in, and let's get started on this journey through the clouded lens of IT sales and marketing. In this first episode, we're going to walk through a little bit of nostalgia, talk about how we got here, how the public cloud and private cloud have developed different to each other, and also why the perception is that private cloud has been a little bit lagging behind public cloud in general. So first of all, today, we want to talk about kind of the transition of IT infrastructure, how we're moving from the just buying a bunch of tin and stick it in the data center into having more of a kind of a cloud consumption model, but in the private world, so the private clouds, as well as how that shifted for folks into the public cloud as well. Now, Stephen, I know that you're, you've been really involved in this, but you still do this as your day-to-day -day job. Talk us through a little bit about your experiences of this transition from just buying a bunch sure. of servers and hardware and chucking it in the data center to where we're at today in the private cloud world. Yeah. Absolutely. So it used to be very much the case that if you're standing up an application, it was a big deal. It would be this multi-year cycle and teams would go and acquire physical servers and install the applications on those physical servers that anchored the deployment of applications to budgetary cycles in, in quite a restrictive way. And obviously people didn't want that. They wanted flexibility to stand up applications whenever, but they couldn't create servers whenever. Virtualization solved that problem. But it was still the case that people were treating virtualization as just an OS deployment tool. You weren't really abstracting a lot on top of that. People tried to automate application deployment. They tried to create templates. They tried to create workflows that worked on top of virtualization in the private cloud. But it wasn't really until public cloud appeared and showed how to do this at scale with the type of efficiencies that it was possible to deliver from public cloud, that private cloud really reevaluated what was possible and starts to give people business value instead of giving people an operating system instance. What public cloud created was an overhauling where all of a sudden private cloud was aware what was possible and started chasing after what people were doing in public cloud. So we saw all of a sudden a rash of services that were consuming and reselling the underlying virtualization and allowing teams to get not an operating system instance, but first maybe a specific application instance, then perhaps a pool of application instances. And as time went on, 
you were starting to see services that were deploying containerization solutions on those virtual machines and then running scale-out applications, which could then be supplied as a service. And we started to get more on parity with private cloud. What I think was the challenge side of that was that typically private cloud wanted to offer a simple service to the customers. The infrastructure teams that were managing private cloud, they got the, the sharp end and they weren't given tools to manage. They were still using the same management tools that they had when they were managing individual operating system instances on physical servers. They hadn't seen the overhaul. They hadn't seen the cost savings and the flexibility. They were still living in a pre-cloud world. I think that's what's really problematic for private cloud is you're supplying this fantastic cloud consumption model to your customers, but as an infrastructure team managing it, you're still doing it the hard way because your effort is kind of invisible. And in many ways, you're kind of blamed a little bit for not being smart enough to fix it yourself. So th that's definitely the challenge, I think, with, with a lot of private cloud solutions, that they don't make it easy enough for people to actually run them, but they make it easy for the customers to go and consume the service. An interesting topic you raised there with who's consuming it. And I think personally, that's what I saw in that first move that I made into public cloud, AWS and so on services over 10 years ago was it wasn't led by the same people that were buying servers. It was led by the application builders, the developers, the product owners. And I think that there was that difference in consumption model, wasn't there? So the original people building the private clouds were the infrastructure folks trying to make their lives easier, but the public cloud was being consumed by the developers and the product builders. Do you think that's changed these days, or are you still seeing that kind of slightly different dynamic there in terms of Hughes going out there and making those decisions? I think when we looked to the start of public cloud adoption, it was going in under that crucial spending level where you could get a low-level manager's credit card and do something on public cloud, which caused this growth of what became termed shadow IT, IT that was happening outside of the auspices of the central managed IT department, right? And the central managed IT department had gone through several generations of infrastructure with individual teams buying their servers and not patching them and not buying enough servers to be resilient and getting blamed for it because some other part of the infrastructure was seen as, as the problem. And they just clawed all that in and centralized it and were trying to offer centralized private cloud services. And all of a sudden you had individual teams going out with like credit cards, putting them on Amazon, spinning up a whole bunch of VMs that were once again outside of their control. Yeah, But then... If you fast forward maybe five or 10 years, I think you're starting to see public cloud infrastructure teams. It's becoming a speciality. You mentioned uh, putting a credit card in there. I think throughout the past 10 years, my credit card has been running occasionally business critical systems in a few organizations I've worked at. And that's the thing is you, I can't put my credit card into a data center and spin up some services that the IT team don't know about. I absolutely can do that in some sort of cloud service. It might even not even be infrastructure. It could be a SaaS service somewhere. We hear this all the time. Marketing teams just go off and spend money and they're allowed to, of course, but it's it then IT have to then deal with it. And security and security do not want to be the last people to hear about a brand new service being stood up containing someone's data that may or may not be your own data. You've got this tension between on the one hand showing initiative and delivering results and on the other hand, your strategic posture and your business security. 
And then fighting against that is the fact that you're trusting people to do a degree of spending, hmm. but the step function for doing it the right way is so large that they can't actually spend to get the infrastructure they want in-house. But if they go to public cloud, their spending capability is enough that they can run a service. It's kind of a, an engineered problem that businesses have created for themselves where they supply internal services, but the cost increment for those services of buying a new cluster or a new appliance or whatever it is so much larger than buying a couple of virtual machines out in the public cloud. I think sometimes there is an innovation kind of step change, though, that means we can't provide that in- internally or it's cost prohibitive providing that internally. For example, AI is super easy to consume online. I just chat GPT, I want an enterprise edition, I go to Google and get barred, whatever it is. It's very easy to do. Now, if I was to do that in my own data center, ignoring the lead times, generally to get a decent AI, you need the data sets, you're going to need some good storage for that, you're going to need some GPUs, you're going to need some significant compute as well. They're not cheap things to do cost effectively. Now, obviously, that's a brand new market and that market will mature. And we're already seeing some hardware vendors come out with some low cost, cost effective hardware solutions for that. But I guess a lot of people would say to be innovative, to to really be at the bleeding edge, public cloud is the only way to go because I'm going to consume something that is quick and easy to do, chuck on the credit card and it there and then. We mentioned earlier about the automation side of things, and we've had things like BMC control and so on like for donkey's years. I, I feel like it... With with a few exceptions, it never really took off as like a, a data center automation, and I feel like we're still maybe not quite there. You're more involved in this side of things. Where do you think the challenges are and have been, and why are we not more automated than we could be? The challenges exist in uh, perception, marketing, and the leadership of these companies. Right, so I can tell you from being inside some of these large IT organizations, automation, cross-vendor automation, cross-product team automation was possible and achievable and engineers at the grassroots level kept writing systems to do it and it was shut down by management. It was shut down either because they didn't want to make it easy to use a partner's product, not even competitor's product, like a partner. Or another department in the same company who was like, oh, we don't want to make it easy to automate this because we're trying to push our own siloed automation product. So we don't want your automation. That meant that there was never a standard way of automating because every individual product team was trying to sell automation as a feature of their product without realizing that ship had sailed a decade before. And automation should really be table state. To some extent, those same problems exist in the public cloud. If you choose a single cloud provider, automation is is entirely doable and you've got 10 different ways of doing it. If mm. you're trying to do the multi-cloud automation, I think that's where it gets really difficult. You've got the promise of things like Ansible and Terraform and all these other tools. But because they rely on all these different providers, you'll have, okay, Amazon allows me to stand up a Terraform provider that can spin up all these IaaS services very easily. In Microsoft, those IaaS services are comparable, but the provider's been written completely differently. So I have to write my automation almost from scratch twice. Once for this provider, once for that provider. So I think we've still got some of those multi-vendor challenges there. And there's been some initiatives. There was an Apache project that meant to kind of put a, plug in an API across everything. 
but still don't see that adoption of those multi-vendor yeah. strategies in that automation way. There are some, but I don't think what well, kind of widespread adoption of that. I still very much see that despite all the talk around multi-vendor and multi-cloud strategies and all the rest of it, it's really expensive and yeah. complicated thing to actually do. It's kind of by design. I think as, as you go up that value chain, you go from surfers to virtual machines to clusters to, to web services and then joining web services together, what you get is more and more differentiation from one vendor to another. It's easier for a vendor to make their function as a service uh, offering subtly different mm-hmm. to their competitors. It's quite hard to make a Linux install subtly different from your competitors. Earlier we were talking a little bit doing things like in an efficient or inefficient ways and having the different areas there. I know that virtualization was one of those things that promised lots of uh, hardware efficiencies and to some extent delivered them. So I remember hearing a story around diesel cars. They were more efficient, they were less polluting, yada, yada, yada. So they were better for the environment. The problem was that what it meant was more people drove diesels and they drove them more because you've got this idea in your head that they're more efficient. So they end up being more polluting. I think the same thing happened with virtualization. I remember one of my first virtualization jobs, we took an entire data center, 100 or so servers, racks of storage, and we could put it back into three servers, one one half rack of storage. But they ended up consuming tons of stuff, and not just for the sake of consuming it, but because virtualization was so easy, everyone just did it. I feel like the same thing's happening with cloud. Because it's so easy... You move to cloud because of the promises of cost effectiveness, cost efficiencies, and so on, the dynamic nature of things. And that should be true for dynamic workloads. But because it's so easy, and because there isn't that lead time that there is with the traditional infrastructure, you overuse cloud for the things that probably shouldn't be in the cloud. And it's an interesting dynamic I see at the moment in the industry. There are people who are cloud people telling you you consume the cloud and it's going to be green and it's going to be more cost efficient. And then you've got people who are on the traditional service side of things saying, no, 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 cloud is very, very expensive and it's not green at all. Use our services because it's going to be cheaper and it's going to be more green. I see these arguments all the time and it's very difficult to get to the truth of things in terms of actually what is more efficient and what does efficiency mean because we're talking about carbon emissions and stuff but you've got some people who just care about the dollar value so which is actually more efficient in terms of my monthly costs or my upfront capitals and it's a real challenge yeah and being able to not just have a grand strategy but actually be more granular and appreciate nuance we don't need to use cloud for absolutely everything where we've got differentiated services something that cloud can do like ai for example that's something you can really only do if you use the cloud so by all means let's use cloud for that but if you're talking about storing huge amount of data if you're talking about constantly running cpu cores really hot then you might want to just keep those on a server and you pay for it once and it keeps running and you get four or five years use out of it if you can split up your workload and choose cloud for the bits where cloud is the best choice, that's yep. good. But if you're blindly using cloud because someone saw a glossy brochure, you really want to just hit the brakes and reconsider. Yeah, I think that's the 
one of the problems with an anything first policy is you're telling everyone use this unless you can fully justify to the board that you shouldn't be doing it it should be much more here's the service catalog you can use if you got something that looks and feels and shapes like it should be in the public cloud absolutely use it if you've got something that looks and feels like it needs some hardware go and stick it in on-prem one thing i think that if we follow the money on this, a lot of these decisions, you either have a very strong, clear-headed architect who can fight and try and make the best pragmatic, sensible judgment calls and say, that's cloud, that's not cloud. Or you have a very aggressive vendor. And increasingly, we're seeing customers, especially at the last decade, when the complexity ratcheted up, they hook themselves to one of these large players in the industry. And if your strategic vendor happens to be a large cloud player, then what you're going to end up doing is moving everything to the cloud because they're never going to tell you that they can't take your workload. And then you end up with a situation, yeah, where you're spending 100,000 a month or whatever, but you've been overwhelmed by the complexity of, of actually setting this up and managing it. So you've abdicated responsibility. I have a friend who worked at an insurance company who was brought on to try and evaluate some of the calculations, the risk analysis. And these are fundamentally like n-dimensional spreadsheets. So you model out uh, the probability of things in one dimension, and then you add another dimension for another risk factor, another dimension for another risk factor. When my friend arrived there, he arrived in a department that was calculating these huge arrays of figures using Microsoft Excel. They were really happy about how futuristic they were doing because they were automating it. He rapidly came to the conclusion that they were deluded and he would show them that the stuff they were doing that was taking a weekend, he could get the results back in five minutes and fought battle after battle after battle to show that this was good and would help the business and was just met with, that's not the way we do it. And I think that that's the reality for a lot of people. A lot of people go into businesses and they want to help and they can see an opportunity for change and improvement. But because it's not the change and improvement that the old cadre created. And so you, you don't displace those technologies. You get viewed as reckless and you get bad reputation, which is exactly the opposite of, of what should be happening. But we've always done it this way. And it's the most dangerous phrase ever. There are a lot of businesses where that's absolutely fine. And that's the way the business is going to be run for the next 10 years until finally they go bust or they don't. A lot of banks that are still run like that. A lot of government agencies are still run like that. Oh, yeah. It's hard to challenge those. There's also the, the psychological element of that. I've certainly worked in organizations where you see the IT team and they're in the clock to retirement and they don't want to do big, exciting projects with lots of change. And so they're going to fight those every step of the way. you got people who really don't particularly like change. And a lot of people, just human nature, change is scary. And they don't want to change that, so they're going to fight it. So there's an interesting kind of psychological element of this. So when you've got something that's a core belief system, and normally this is things like politics or religion, but sometimes it can creep into other areas, especially if you've worked in this area for your entire life or you've got a long history of it. And they've studied this with MRI scans and stuff, but when your core belief system is challenged, you have exactly the same mental response, the fight and flight response, as if someone pulled a gun on you. I've certainly been in meetings where you can see that response, not someone getting ready to pull a gun on me, but you see that response from someone saying, nope, 
You've challenged my belief system. I am no longer listening to you. I am no longer mm-hmm. going to take anything you say. I'm just going to argue with you because you've challenged my belief system. Challenging people's assumptions like that. Okay, I suppose I've been working in IT for a fair while now, like about 25 years at this point. But even when I started, it had already become entrenched. And that's always something that struck a note of discord, for me at least, because I think IT is one of those problems where no program is ever finished. No code is ever complete. Look at Unix. We're still writing Unix. And I think that applies to IT as a service as well. Like you don't set up a network or a server and, and have it as complete. It You always need to evolve it. And if you're trying to gatekeep it and you're trying to restrict people from doing that, that then you've become the problem, unfortunately. And, yeah. and that's a hard reality for people to absorb if they've been in that job for 20 years. So yes, software is never finished, is never complete. But the software cycles were quite long. So those the software is complete for the next two to three years, and then the new ones were released. Whereas now, the software genuinely isn't complete. Last time I heard this stat, it's probably changed since then, but Amazon as an entire organization does 8,000 releases a day. And that, side of, that kind of cadence of, of software releases is scary for a lot of people. Now, if you... It's not a single project or a single product that's doing 8,000 releases. It's just it's obviously as a whole. And it is definitely something that a lot of people aren't used to. Take a standard sprint is you're going to be releasing every two weeks. Why is that okay when Amazon does it, but it's not okay when you do it? Why is it okay if someone like Amazon, a huge vendor, does 8,000 releases a day and you don't get to say, slow down, whoa, this scares me, but in-house... If your team tells you they want to release once a day, you would say, no, that's too much. You're scaring me. Slow down. On one hand, you're saying, oh, it's too fast. But on the other hand, you go use an Amazon service and you accept Amazon's cadence. And that's that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a whole complexity to that release cycle. So you've got the way people used to release software had a whole framework and release structure around it which makes a lot of people feel confident because it's a release cycle they know and understand the amazon way we're releasing stuff and the netflix google the, the way that they do those releases is a very takes a very different model and the responsibilities are very different the developer that does the release is responsible for that release now that's not how things used to work if i'm part of a release cycle I can go to bed at night and I can sleep and I'm not going to get phoned up in the middle of the night because I'm not on the operations team or I don't work in the SOC or the NOC. It's part of that release cycle is handing it over to someone else. It's a whole shift, really, in the way we do some of these things. So one of the things that was supposed to be the enabler for cloud, I feel we've introduced perfectly here because we've just wandered into the introduction of DevOps. We're going to pause there on the bit of a cliffhanger. In the next session, we're going to be jumping into answering that question in terms of what is DevOps? What does it actually mean? Is it that unicorn entity? We're also going to tackle the topic of digital transformation, kind of how that fits into public cloud and DevOps and why the perception is that digital transformation is always going on and so often failing. So come join us again. Hope you enjoyed today's session. Reach out to us if you've got any questions, comments, feedback. We love to hear it. See you next time. Bye.